Now, this is now our 43rd lesson in Genesis as we make our way through this wonderful book uh, uh, that God in his wisdom and in, in his sovereign plan placed as the first book in, in this Holy Scriptures. Now, being placed first sets the tone and places a framework for what is to follow in the rest of the Scriptures. Our Genesis is a book that is a straightforward record of events as they happen. Uh, this is not a product of someone's imagination. Uh, this is not allegory. Uh, these are not collection merely of good stories with some moral lef- lessons at the end of it, although they do have events and principles that we can learn from, but it's a record of beginnings, a beginning of the world, of life, of civilizations, of nations, uh, with a particular plan, with an intention. And what is recorded here for us is going in a particular direction uh, and for a particular reason. You see, Genesis is a word that has its origins in in the Greek language, and it's a word that means origin or or source uh, uh, or or generation or or beginning. The Hebrew title, which is the original title for the book, uh, is Bereshit, which means in the beginning. Are taken from the first word that is found in the book. You know, the first three to four thousand years are covered in the first 11 chapters of this particular book. And here the author Moses focuses on introducing the audience to the Creator God and the beginnings of life and, and sin and judgment and family and worship and salvation. But at the end of 11, chapter 11 and beginning of chapter 12, the narrative slows down as it focuses on individuals and covers for the rest of the book, so almost 39 chapters, a period of 300 years. And four individuals are particularly the focus of the study of this 39 chapters. It's Abraham, whose life we are currently studying. It's Isaac, it's Jacob, and then it's Joseph. Four individuals. It narrows down because it is through this family, it is through this man, Abraham in particular, that the nation of Israel will be established. But more importantly, it is through this one man, Abraham, through whom God is accomplishing his plans to bring redemption to his people. And he does that by sending his son, Jesus. Uh, Repeatedly we are reminded that the Old Testament is a shadow the reality of which is found in the New Testament, in the person of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament points to the coming Messiah. Now, the promise was given to Abraham and to his descendant. Now, we studied that in Genesis 17, verse 7, where it says, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your seed, singular, after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your seed after you. The entire focus of the narrative in front of us is the Lord Jesus Christ. What is the seed? Well, we learn that it is the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul quotes this particular text in Galatians 3.16 and tells us that it is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, the Son of God, is promised through Abraham. And so it's of vital importance to understand how this particular line was preserved and guarded. The savior of the world was to come through this particular line. 
And the text we have in front of us today, Genesis 20, helps us understand the lengths to which God went to preserve and protect this line. And it helps us understand how he graciously and mercifully and faithfully works through the weaknesses and lack of, his, lack of faith that sometimes his children display. Now don't be too hard on Abraham because as we look closely at his life, we will find that we too display the kind of faith that Abraham displays in this chapter. And so I've titled our lesson for today, Faithless Abraham and Faithful God. Our faithless Abraham and Faithful God. Let's look at the first thing that is mentioned in the first two verses, which I've titled Sin That Is Unaddressed. Sin That Is Unaddressed. Now Abraham journeyed from there toward the land of the Negev and settled between Kadesh and Shur, and then he sojourned in Gerar. Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And so Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Abraham went south. Negev is a Hebrew word that means south. He went toward the land of the Negev. And then, remember, he started in the oaks of Mamre or Hebron. And then he goes south. And then for some time settled between Kadesh and Shur. And then he journeyed or sojourned in Gerar, coming up north again, more to the northwestern side of that land. Now, we are not given a reason for why he moved away from the oaks of Mamre or Hebron, where we last see him in chapter 18. We are also not told why he settled between Kadesh and Shur, and we are also not given a reason why he sojourned in Gerar. Now, it's possible that because of the recent destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding areas that we saw in chapter 19, that there was a general fear and dread in that part of the world, and so people began to move away. That's possible. Another possible reason could be that Abraham may have heard that Lot was spared by the Lord, but that he had ended up impregnating his own daughters and that he was still in the area. And so perhaps Abraham doesn't want to be associated with Lot. He may have wanted to get away from it all. Or it may be that Abraham has, is acting in line with his status as a nomad, a pilgrim, a sojourner, and he's looking for pastures for his cattle or flock. Uh, that is very likely the reason. And so now he finds himself in the area of Gerar. Now, considering that the angel had promised Abraham and Sarah that she would conceive in the next year, by this time next year, we are told in chapter 18, Sarah will have a son. So considering that fact, this period that is described here in these first two verses, in fact, in this chapter, could very well be between eight to ten weeks after the visit of the angels. And so as he sojourns in Gerar, we find him in the first two verses repeating a lie that he has mentioned before, verse 2. And what is that lie? He says, Sarah is my sister. Now, as soon as we read that, we go... Well, here we go again. Deja vu, right? It's a, it's a repeat of what has happened before is what we think. But don't let the same tactic that Abraham used in the past in Genesis 12 rob you of the importance of this particular chapter, of this event. 
There are some important differences between what happened in chapter 12 and what's happening in chapter 20. In chapter 12, where we find a similar account from verse 10 to verse 20, it was the famine that prompted Abraham to go down to Egypt. Here, we have no such reason given for his movement. Also, in chapter 12, we are informed of Sarah's beauty, and we are given access to Abraham's reasoning and his thinking behind his deception. Here, in this chapter, no such insight is given in the first two verses. It's only later on that we learn about the reasons of why Abraham repeated his lie. Now, the reference to Sarah's beauty in chapter 12 and the lack of such reference here does not mean that Sarah has become less beautiful. Uh, you can be beautiful even if you're 90, which is what Sarah was at this stage. In chapter 12, also, Abraham is treated well before it is revealed that Sarah is his wife. In this chapter, Abraham is treated well after it is revealed that Sarah is his wife. Also, in chapter 12, the Lord strikes Pharaoh and his household with, a, with great plagues. Here, the Lord closes the wombs of Abimelech's house. That was the consequence of their actions. Also, in chapter 12, Pharaoh does not want Abraham and his wife in his land anymore, so much so that he commands his men to escort him and his wife out of Egypt. But Abimelech, on the other hand, wants Abraham to stay and not leave. In fact, he even offers him land that is in front of him. So lots of differences between those two stories. But what is common, and don't miss this, is that the same tactic that Abraham has used in the past, that same lie that Abraham has used in the past is repeated here again. And so we see that sin is left unaddressed. At least 25 years have elapsed between these two incidents, the first one in chapter 12 and this one in chapter 20. But Abraham commits the same sin, the sin of misrepresenting facts, the sin of lying. Of course, the Ten Commandments came later on in Exodus, but there was always an implicit understanding that to lie is to sin against a holy God. You see, God is a God of truth, and to lie would be to act and behave not in line with God's character. That's why it's wrong to lie. Uh, this is a sin that the great, great patriarch did not address in his life. He does not deal with uh, what should have been dealt with urgency and without mercy was left to linger and now it has come back into his life. What are some lessons for us even before we look at the next few verses? Well, one of the lessons is, it, you know, Abraham is by this time is about 100 years old. And so one lesson that we can take from this particular two verses is that it does not matter how old you are, how educated you are, or the titles that you have. It does not matter the reputation you have in the body of Christ. You might be an elder or a deacon or a pastor or a lay leader. You can still be tempted and you can still even give into the temptation like Abraham has given into this particular temptation. Abraham, as I said, is almost 100 years old. He's a grown man. Uh, David was a grown man, an older man, when he committed adultery and murder. Uh, Peter was 
the apostle Peter, he was a grown man who lived and traveled and closely observed our Lord, and yet he denied him not once, but three times. Our sin is no respecter of age. Our sin is no respecter of title. A sin is no respecter of reputation. Sin is no respecter of gender. It doesn't matter whether you're a man or a, or a woman. You are tempted to sin. No one is beyond temptation. And as believers, we must always be on our God, guard. Unless we take heed, we too would fall. Isn't it Paul who says, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Abraham did not take heed. Don't ever be comfortable with your own sins. Don't ever excuse them. Be ruthless in weeding out sinful habits and sinful thought patterns. You cannot expect to be holy when you tolerate sin. You must resist it. You must fight. And by lying about his relationship with Sarah, Abraham put God's plan to bring about a child through her in a precarious position. Now, don't get me wrong. Nothing or no one in this world can thwart or usurp God's plan or his authority. What he has planned, he will always accomplish. And nothing takes God by surprise. And yet, just because he takes a particular course of action does not therefore provide a justification for us to, to sin. We are still responsible for our sins. We see then a sin that is unaddressed. And we are told that Abimelech, which is very likely to be a title in verse 2, than a, than, a, than, a, than a particular name, Abimelech means my father is king. Av means father and Melech means king. My father is king. Abimelech is the king of Gerar and he responds to Abraham's lie and sends for, notice verse 2, and takes Sarah. Sends for and takes Sarah. Uh, the phrase send and sent and took is a phrase that is loaded with physical and sexual overtones. He sent and took Sarah with an intention to sleep with her. A similar phrase is used for King David in 2 Samuel chapter uh, 2, uh, chapter 12, chapter 11 rather. Um, when David sent messengers and took Bathsheba, but there we are told that when she came, he lay with her. Oh, he goes a step further, doesn't he? Here, no such thing happens. No such thing happens because behind what is happening in the city of Gerar, secondly, is sovereignty that is unimaginable. A sovereignty that is unimaginable. Notice verse 3. But God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is married. Now Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay a nation even though blameless? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this, and I also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die. 
you and all who are yours. If at all there is something called as a nightmare, uh, this is one example of it. Not one of those that you have, and then when you get up, you realize it was just a, a dream. You know, by God's grace, I'm able to sleep very well. As soon as I close my eyes, I'm tuned off and zoned out. Uh, it happens every night. But every now and then, I have these nightmares. I suspect some of you do too. Uh, and one of these nightmares that is quite recurring in my life is I, I'm on my way for a written test somewhere or an important interview only to find out that I'm an hour late for either the test or the interview. And because I'm an hour late, I failed the test or I did not get the job that I was supposed to get. And whenever I have these nightmares, it's always because I've been delayed by an hour. Now, I've never had those when I was growing up in India, but only after I came to the US. I don't know if it has something to do with the daylight savings time or something like that. But when I get up, I just realize it's, it's, it's all a dream and I'm at rest. But you know, that's, that's not what is happening here in this text. God did actually appear to Abimelech and that too through a dream in the night. Uh, this truly happened. And if there was such a thing as a nightmare, then we have one right here. What, what follows is a conversation between God and Abimelech. And in the conversation as you follow it, it becomes clear that the God of the Bible is truly a sovereign and his sovereignty is unimaginable. How do we know that? Notice how God addresses this king, Abimelech, the king of Gerar. Abimelech, you are a dead man. Now who addresses a king in this way? Only the king of kings. Abimelech does not say, don't you know that I am the king of Gerar? No, there is no recognition from this king of a tiny place called Gerar that he is dealing with. This is not a fellow king from another region. Ah, but this is the sovereign king of the universe. You are a dead man. Notice what else God says. You are a dead man because of the woman that you have taken. She is married. Now, even before the Ten Commandments were given, it was known and understood in this part of the world that adultery was wrong. It was a sin. But even more than that, as you take a step back from the text, you recognize that God created marriage and he cares for marriage more than you and I ever will. That alone should act as a deterrent to anyone taking marriage lightly. Every now and then, we, I'll have someone come and talk, and as we talk, I, I sense that they are, they're ready, and I'm excited for them to get married. They don't have to come to me to talk to me before they do get married, but every now and then, I'll, I'll say to someone, hey, brother, hey, sister, would, do you, I, I, I think it might be helpful to wait for a few months as God continues to work on your heart. Why? Why do we do that? It's, it's because we take marriage seriously. Why do we take marriage seriously? It's because God takes marriage seriously. Coming in the dream of a king who's about to proceed with this relationship with Sarah. You know, before sin harms and damages man, it hurts and dishonors God. 
Before sin harms and damages man, it hurts and dishonors God. You see, every sin, no matter how little or large it is, it's ultimately against a holy God. Isn't it David, King David, who who says in Psalm 51, verse 4, against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. We begin to see God's sovereignty, don't we? Also remember the period that Sarah is in. Remember I said this is that eight to ten weeks after or in immediately after the angels visit them. She is perhaps at this time already pregnant with Isaac or she's soon going to be pregnant with Isaac. And God, by confronting the king, is exercising his sovereignty by protecting his promise and safeguarding the covenant with Abraham. Oh, this is not just a repetition of another story. Uh, There's far more to it than meets the eye. You see, before we are given Abimelech's response, we are told, uh, first of all, that he had not come near her, verse 4. And at least five times, the text either explicitly states that Sarah was not violated, or it it is implied in what is mentioned. Notice verse 4, Abimelech had not come near her. Notice at the end of verse 4, are you going to slay a nation even though blameless? Implicit within that statement is we have not done anything wrong yet. And notice six at the, verse, at the middle of verse 6. I kept you from sinning against me. And then at the end of verse 6. Before all, uh, I did not let you touch her. And then go down to verse 16. Where, he, where Abimelech speaks to Sarah. And he says, behold, it is your vindication before all who are with you. And before all men, you are cleared. Moses takes effort in letting us know that there has been nothing gone wrong, sexually speaking, between Abimelech and Sarah. So how does Abimelech speak, notice or respond, verse 4? He knows who he is interacting with. Are you going to destroy or slay a nation even though blameless? And as you read that statement, your mind should go back to Abraham's interaction with the Lord in chapter 18. Remember there, Abraham is pleading on behalf of Sodomites for God to spare the city even if ten righteous are found in that city. But here, Abimelech is pleading on behalf of his nation even though they are blameless in this circumstance. I am blameless, he says, because I'm acting merely on what I have been told. I have acted in good faith. Isn't it Abraham who himself said to me that this is his sister? And then she says, this is my brother. I then sent her and took her in the integrity of my heart, he says, and the innocence of my hand. And as you read that, to this response from Abimelech, we get another glimpse of God's sovereignty. God says, yes, I know that you've done this, verse 6, in the integrity of your heart. It's interesting that God does not repeat the second part of that sentence, only the sentence that says that you've done this in the integrity of your heart, uh, which, if you were to think of it, that is the standard that was expected from Abraham, the patriarch, to walk in the integrity of his heart. But we see that standard 
in a pagan ruler. Yes, God knows. He is aware. Not only is God aware, he now reveals that it was he who kept, verse 6, Abimelech from sinning against him. I did not let you touch her, he says. As we read that, we should think God sometimes intervenes directly in the affairs of mankind. While God is always in control, there are times when it is of vital importance for him to intervene directly in the way that he does here. Now, we're not told every time he does this, but in this instance, we are told that he has intervened. But why does he do this? Well, God is preventing anything. God is preventing anything that might discredit the birth of the promised seed. God is preventing anything that might discredit the birth of the promised seed. The child that is promised to Sarah is going to be Abraham's seed. And no amount of sin or folly on the part of anyone, whether done in the integrity of their heart or not, is going to create even a scratch, let alone a dent in God's plans. And that's why we have this chapter in God's word. You see, God is a sovereign God. He, he erases some and he drops others. He elevates some and demotes others. He puts some people in the position of power and authority and others not so much. He blesses some with a lot of wealth and others with not as much. All, all with an intention to accomplish his plans and purposes. Uh, this is a sovereign God. Why is Abraham's seed to be protected? Because through the child that will be born to Abraham and Sarah, the Messiah would ultimately come. And through his life, through the way that he lived, he would meet God's standard of holiness. And through the way that he died, by being crucified, unjustly murdered by people who did not want him to be alive, through the way that he died, Jesus would meet God's standard of justice. And it is because of his life that we have now access to our Heavenly Father. That he would one day become the Savior of the world, both Abraham's and Abimelech's Savior as well. Finally, we see God's unimaginable sovereignty powerfully at work as, he, as we see him work through the failures of his people. Our foolishness and our failure does not prohibit God from working through us. Now, that doesn't mean that we should act in those ways. That does not mean that God looks to you acting in those ways so that he can accomplish his plans and purposes. No, it does not give us a license to act in those ways. That does mean, though, that God is a gracious God. He extends his grace to you and to me. I know that you did that in the integrity of your heart. You did not know that she was his wife. Now that you do know that Sarah is Abraham's wife, he says, I want you to restore him, his wife. What about my death sentence, Lord? Notice what he says in verse 7. The man whose wife you have taken is a prophet. He will pray for you, and when he does that, you will live. But if you don't restore her to him, you will die, and all who belong to you will die as well. You know, this is the first time the word prophet is used in the scriptures. And what a moment to use it in. Abraham is referred to as a prophet. Uh, who is a prophet? A prophet is one who represents God to his people. 
how far short Abraham has fallen of that standard. He acted as one. Remember in chapter 18 when he pleaded for the people of Sodom. But here he has done the exact opposite of what a prophet should do and how he should behave. And yet, and yet God in his grace chooses to show mercy and extend grace to Abraham. What a gracious God we have. He shepherds and loves us in spite of our weaknesses and foolish decisions. He is patient and kind with us through our failures. Initially, you acted, he says, to Abimelech in the integrity of your heart and the innocence of your hand. Now that you know who she is, you are no longer in a position to hide behind that. If you don't restore her, he says, you and all who belong to you will die. That brings us thirdly to a spiritual hero that is unsatisfactory. Notice verse 8. And so Abimelech arose early in the morning and called all his servants and told all these things in their hearing and the men were greatly frightened then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him what have you done to us and how have I sinned against you that you've brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin you've done to me things that ought not to be done and Abimelech said to Abraham what have you encountered that you have done this thing Abraham said, because I thought surely there is no fear of God in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she actually is my sister, the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And it came about when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, this is the kindness which you will show to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. You see, a spiritual hero that is completely unsatisfactory. So he's told in the first year of Ronald Reagan's first term as president in 1981, there was a humorous incident involving uh, a gentleman that was working for him. His name was David Stockman. He was the director of the Office of Management and Budget. Uh, humorous, that is, to all, but to Stockman. Uh, you see, he was one of the engineers of the so-called Reagan economics, and he had been interviewed by a magazine called The Atlantic Magazine one day. And in the course of that interview, he made some off-the-cuff remarks that were critical of his boss's policies. Uh, this was an embarrassment to the president, needless to say. And Stockman was called in for accounting. He had lunch with the president. Later, when he had emerged from that lunch meeting with the president, Stockman was asked by reporters, how had the meeting gone? And he replied this, and I quote, My meeting today with the president was more in the nature of the visit to the woodshed. For those who don't know what a woodshed is, it's a place where parents many years back would take their kids for some traditional discipline. And so Stockman describes his meeting with the president. He says, My meeting today with the president was more in the nature of the visit of a visit to the woodshed. You know, Abraham will now have an experience like that. It's a sad one because it is not administered by a holy God, no. Not even by some upright and righteous individual, no. But it is administered by a pagan king. It was night when God had visited Abimelech in verse 3. It's now morning 
and as soon as it is early, he calls his servants and tells them what God has told them, verse 8. Now it's possible that he is telling them because that may have been, they, these people may have been the ones who have encouraged him to take Sarah. Or it may be that he feels the need to explain to his people his action because he now has to return Sarah to Abraham. Because his failure to do so would have brought trouble on all of them. Regardless of the reason, what I want you to notice at the end of verse 8 is their reaction. The text tells us that they were greatly frightened. It shook them as Abimelech shared with them. It is then that Abimelech calls upon Abraham, verse 9. He takes him to the woodshed. Notice verse 9 and 10. What have you done to us? How have I sinned against you? You by your actions have brought me and my entire kingdom a great sin. You, sir, have done to me, he says, things that ought not to be done. God told me last night, and that is verse 7, that you are a prophet. And he goes on to say, what exactly did you see in the future, verse 10, that you did this to us? What did you encounter that you did what you did? How do you even respond to such questions by someone who doesn't even hold to the same standards that you hold to? Now, Abraham knows that he truly has no reasonable response, but he still hasn't learned his lesson from his sin. And so he proceeds to give three reasons for his action. Reason number one, verse 11. Because, he says, I did this because I thought that there is no fear of God in this place. And because there is no fear of God, I will be a dead man because of my wife. How wrong was he in his evaluation of these people? Did you notice the response of the Gerarites in verse 8 when Abimelech shared the events of the night? At the end of verse 8, they are frightened. Not only frightened, they are greatly frightened. Did you notice Abimelech's response when visited by God? He knew that he was not talking to a friend or a fellow king, but someone who was superior, way superior to him. In fact, verse 4, uh, Abimelech calls this God, Lord or Master. And so Abraham has got this wrong. He assumed and acted on an assumption that was false. So first of all, he says, I thought there is no fear of God in this place. But secondly, he says, notice verse 12, she actually is my sister. She is my father's daughter, but not the daughter of my mother. He's trying to hide behind technicalities. Uh, he says, the fact is that she is my sister. But you see, that is not the whole truth. That is, the, that is a half truth. And as someone has said, you know, half truth is a whole lie. Half truth is a whole lie. Abraham knew all along that he was lying and now he is cornered and confronted with his lie. Secondly, trying to hide behind technicalities. But thirdly, in verse 13, he says, and now he goes even a step further, it was actually God, he says. Notice, and it came about when God caused me to wander from my father's house. And that me and Sarah, we came up with this plan in order to preserve my life. Uh, this is the kindness you ought to show to me, Sarah. Say that I am your brother. 
And as you read those three reasons, you're probably saying, is this the same man in chapter 14 who with 318 men conquered five giant armies and plundered them? Is it the same man who pled with the Lord on behalf of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah? Also, the language that he uses sounds very similar, if you were with us, to the language that Adam and Eve used when they were in the Garden of Eden confronted with their sin. Uh, Do you remember what Adam said to the Lord? Uh, The the woman that you gave to me, be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. You see, this is what sin does. It makes you afraid when there is no reason to fear. Proverbs says the wicked run when there's no one who's pursuing them. The wicked run when there's no one who's pursuing them. It makes you hide behind technicalities like Abraham is doing here. It makes you put on the garments of victimhood and you are never the perpetrator of the crime, always the victim. And it makes you think it's okay just because you've been doing it for many years. That's what sin does to our minds and to us. What a sad situation. You know, we all have spiritual heroes, people we admire both dead and alive, people we love to emulate and imitate, people whose faith is a great encouragement to us. But if we take anything from this event, it is this. All heroes are mortals at the end of the day. All heroes are mortals at the end of the day. Or as one speaker says in his lesson on this chapter, all heroes make lousy gods. All heroes make lousy gods. Or the best men are men at best. Don't give God's position to other human beings. A spiritual hero that is unsatisfactory. How does Abimelech respond? Notice verse 14 to 16 as we see a solution that is unexpected. Abimelech then took sheep and oxen and male and female servants and gave them to Abraham and restored his wife Sarah to him. Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Settle wherever you please. Uh, To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Behold, it is your vindication before all who are with you and before all men you are cleared. He takes cattle and slaves and gives them to Abraham as a gift. He takes Sarah, his wife, and he restores her to him. He offers him land in this area to settle where he pleased. Well, as you're reading that, we think, well, why such generosity? Uh, Perhaps because it's beginning to dawn on him that Abraham is truly a prophet. God has acknowledged him as such, verse 7, in spite of Abraham's foolishness or folly. And so Abimelech maybe may have wanted to get into the good books of Abraham. Uh, We don't know for sure. Prophecy, you know, some good things about me perhaps. Prophesy some good things about me. Uh, So he offers him restitution by giving him wealth and slaves and he offers him peace by letting him settle in the land. And to Sarah he says, verse 16, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Now, before you notice the silver, did you notice what he calls Abraham? He says, your brother. That's a gentle rebuke, don't you think? Abraham calls himself Sarah's brother. She calls him brother. 
And so Abimelech now joins the party in calling Abraham her brother. And in calling him her brother, Abimelech is displaying a not-so-subtle sign of his continued displeasure with what Abraham did to him. What a stinging rebuke. Abraham, your brother. And then he says, a thousand pieces of silver. Now, half a piece of silver is a month's salary for a Babylonian laborer. And so a year's salary would be like six pieces of silver. And so this is way above that. Uh, more to the point, uh, when a bride was married, 50 pieces of silver was given as a bride price. And so with what Ab Abimelech was offering Abraham here, it could cover 20 brides. And so Abimelech then is being very, very generous towards Abraham. Abraham's folly then is met by an amazing act of grace on Abimelech's part. Not only that, the payment was for a specific reason. Notice he mentions that in verse 16. It was a price paid to show that Sarah was vindicated before all. Her status as someone who was not violated remains intact. Her testimony before all was clear. As you read that, it seems like Abimelech is more concerned for Sarah's honor than even Abraham is. Abraham's behavior in that sense resembled Lot's. If you remember chapter 19, Lot was willing to give up the honor of his daughters. Abraham is willing to give up the honor of his wife or his half-sister. But why, if you were to pursue this further, why go to such a great length to absolve Sarah of any guilt of impurity? Here's why. You see, Sarah was going to be the mother of a child who would eventually go on to become the ancestor of the anointed one of the Lord. And that's why this chapter is so important. The Messiah, the savior of the world, was to eventually come from the seed. And so it was important to drive home the point that nothing happened between Abimelech and Sarah. He had not come near her, that God had kept Abimelech from sinning against him. God had not even let him touch her. You see, the promise was protected. What a faithful God we have. That brings us finally to the last two verses, to a supplication that is unhindered. Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maid, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed fast all the wombs of the household of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. See, Abraham prayed to God, something he should have done before sojourning to Gerar, uh, something that should have been the very posture of his life. Remember David's psalm, Psalm 56, in verse 3, he says, when I am afraid, I will trust in you. Isn't that, shouldn't that be our response when we are afraid? When I am afraid, I trust in you. I run to you. I go to your word for comfort and strength. You are my refuge and my shelter. Abraham now acts in line with his status as a prophet of God as he intercedes on behalf of Abimelech and his people. And now for the first time we are told that the Lord had closed the wombs of the household of Abimelech because of Sarah. So far, if you notice Abimelech's character, he comes across as someone who's a very innocent ruler. Uh, this helpless victim, this man of integrity, 
but now it becomes clear that it is not only true that God kept him from sinning, but that God had done that by closing the wombs of the household of Abimelech. And so Abraham's supplication on behalf of Abimelech brings about healing from God. Healing that then brings about the ability to conceive for his wife and his maids. It's interesting to note, isn't it? For the last nine chapters, we are, be, we are interacting with a man of God whose wife is unable to conceive. And here he is, a prophet, whose own wife, Sarah, was, has not conceived for more than 75 years, and yet God hears his prayer in regards to Abimelech and opens the wombs of these women in Gerar. You see, God heard, heard Abraham's prayer on behalf of this king. Now, we're not told what happened between verse 16 and 17. Did Abraham seek the Lord and his forgiveness? Did Abraham confess his sin and, and seek reconciliation with the Lord? It's not recorded, but it's very likely. It's likely because we know from 1 Peter 3 that when a husband does not live with his wife in an understanding way and does not show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, that that husband's prayer will be hindered. We also know that the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. We can then assume that Abraham has been reconciled with God. Every mention of Abraham in the New Testament has to do with his faith. He's a man of faith. He's a friend of God. There's not a single mention in the New Testament to this particular incidence. Fair to assume then that God has forgiven Abraham. What are some lessons that we can learn from this chapter? Well, quickly, first of all, we worship a faithful God. We worship a faithful God. We see him in this chapter going to great lengths, appearing to people in their dreams, helping them not to commit sin, protecting his own so that his seed is protected, the covenant is protected. We worship a faithful God. Secondly, we serve a gracious God, a God who is patient and persistent and one who is abundant in mercy and grace towards you and towards me. When things don't go the way that we want them to go, don't forget that we serve a gracious God. And finally, we trust a perfect intercessor. You know, Abraham was an intercessor, wasn't he? He interceded for Abimelech. But Abraham was an imperfect intercessor. One who was a sinful man just like you and me. But in Christ, in Christ we have a perfect intercessor. One who is without sin. One who did not commit any sin. One who through his life lived a perfect life. Which is called active obedience. He obeyed God perfectly. And his righteousness was applied to you and me if you have placed your trust in Christ alone. And in his death, he met God's standards of justice. That is why you and I have access to a holy God. What a great God we serve. Faithless Abraham and a faithful God. Let me close our time in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this evening. Thank you for the reminders from your word that even though we may act many times 
in a way that shows a lack of faith on our part, that even though we may act many times in foolish ways, uh, that you are a faithful God. You are a gracious God. Uh, There is no one like you. Lord, we praise and worship you because you alone are worthy of our praise and worship. I do commit the rest of the evening into your hands. And I pray that you would help us to be able to reflect on these lessons well. And I pray that you would be honored through our time together. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.